Thank you, music team. Hey, kids, ages three through first grade, it's your time. Uh, we have uh, children's worship for you. If it's okay with your parents, you can head back to the back, and uh, your teacher will be right there with you. For the rest of us, if you would turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, we'll read the first 18 verses. <clears throat> it takes longer to clear the stage these days, doesn't it? <laughs> For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of the things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've taken no pleasure." Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying... This is the covenant that I will make with him after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Amen. Father, we do love you, and we are so grateful for your magnificent love for us and how you have called us out of darkness into your glorious light. You have taken away our sin, O oh God, and you have clothed us in the very righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for this, we are amazed. And we are here today because of this reality. Father, would you deal with us and help us to understand more and more what you have done for us that we might keep moving forward towards you. Father, please bless this time. Bless our kids and children's worship that they may come to know you. And help us to live according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start out by reading to you a, a passage from G.K. Chesterton's uh, book, uh, Orthodoxy. And uh, to do so, I need to also confess an error on my part. Uh, ordinarily, I print off the quote on the back of the inside of my notes, or I bring the book up on stage, and I've done neither. So I'm going to have to read it off of here just with you. So uh, here we are. He says, uh, he's talking about progress, and so he wants to give an illustration of what it means to, to move forward, to progress in something. Silly examples are always simpler. Let us suppose a man wanted a particular kind of world, say, a blue world. 
He would have no cause to complain of the slightness or swiftness of his task. He might toil for a long time at the transformation. He could work away in every sense until all was blue. He could have heroic adventures, like putting the last touch to a blue tiger. He could have fairy dreams, the dawn of a blue moon. But if he worked hard, that high-minded reformer would certainly, from his own point of view, leave the world better and bluer than he found it. If he altered a blade of grass to his favorite color every day, he would get on slowly. But if he altered his favorite color every day, he would not get on at all. If, after reading a fresh philosopher, that is tricky, he started to paint everything red or yellow, his work would be thrown away. There would be nothing to show except a few blue tigers walking about, specimens of his early bad manner. And he's right about the silly illustration, isn't he? But his idea is that if we change the goal, we can never talk about progress. There's no such thing as progress if you continually change the goal, because you're, you're not moving in any direction at all. You're just wandering about aimlessly, literally aimlessly, because your goal is forever changing. In order to have progress, you have to have an unchanging goal. That goal has to remain the same, and you keep moving toward that. I think it's important when we look at uh, this passage, and in particular as we just think about the, the book of Hebrews in general, to understand that the New Testament is not a new goal. The New Testament is the fulfillment of the goal established in the beginning when God created man. God's goal was to redeem a people for Himself. His goal was always redemption, and He's taking us through that, through the Old Testament into the New. It's not a new plan. It's not a new goal. It isn't God being aimless. But there is the single goal, which is redemption, that the New Testament fulfills. I think this concept drives the author of Hebrews as he's writing to his readers. These readers who are uh, first century Jewish believers, and they're, they're, they've got a, a part of themselves that are still trying to live in the Old Testament and a part that is trying to live in the New Testament. And what he's telling them and he's urging them and he's drawing them to keep moving forward, to not step back. We've now got the new covenant. The goal remains the same, but we're in a new uh, covenant, a new administration. Keep moving in that direction. Don't go back. Keep moving forward. And that's the same call to us. Well, how do we keep moving forward? I think to keep moving forward, we have to take the time to examine the object of our faith. And we see this in the first uh, 10 verses of the passage. You see, what, what the author is doing is he starts out this, this section, and in the first 10 verses, he critiques the Old Testament animal sacrifices. He takes the time to look at them and to show in, in verse 1, he says that they are nothing but a shadow. And he says that they can never make someone perfect. He says in uh, verse 3, he says if those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin. He, he doesn't say it takes away sin, but it's a continual reminder. And in verse 4, he says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. He critiques the Old Testament animal sacrifices. And he says just on their own merit, they're lacking. They're not able to accomplish it. He takes the time to examine the object of the faith of these early Christians who had been born Jews and grown up in the Jewish uh, religious culture. And he says, you've got to look at that and examine what your object of faith is. In 1996, 
Um, I'd been uh, in the pastoral ministry for, uh, I guess, well, uh, ordained for two years, but uh, uh, in general for three years. I spent a year as an intern doing all of the work, and, um, and yet it was a time in which I had to examine my own faith. There were a few things that God took me through, and, and uh, it, it just left me to, to look closely at what I believe and, and what is it that I believe. And one of the things that I did is I, I began to read through the Gospels, and I said, I want to read through the Gospels in a different way. I want to read them as though I were the 13th disciple walking along, as if I was right there with the others watching all this stuff happen. What would it be like? How would that affect me? And I was, I was frankly surprised at what I saw as I began to, to recognize that um, I saw Jesus incredibly tender and patient. When I had thought of him as being mostly kind of, kind of angry, right? I would think of him as, as saying, Oh, you of little faith! And I began to see instead there was a tenderness. You just got little faith. You're just those, those guys. Of, and I began to see something in Jesus. I began to understand that love is patient. And I realized that as Jesus walked through life, he saw everyone's sin around him. And he almost never corrected it. He was patient with those individuals. He allowed the full three years for Judas to hang out with him. And yet he knew I didn't expect that. I began to see that there were more informal gatherings than, if you will, worship services and sermons in Jesus' ministry. A lot more time that he was at someone's house having dinner than he was standing in a pulpit. I didn't expect to see that. That that surprised me. It surprised me that I saw in the Gospels that God was a being who is not threatened by our sin, nor insecure about his own glory. He knew who he was, and he had come to care for us, not to care for himself, because he was fine. And this began to really affect my faith, because I wondered, I thought, well, but is this is this what I believe? I'm a Presbyterian minister, for goodness sakes. You know, and I thought that I was supposed to believe that he was angry at everybody. And so I began to open up the Westminster Standards, and I said, I've got to read these again. And, and I was ready to, to leave the Presbyterian church behind as I began to read the confession. And you know, I didn't see the dry uh, document I expected, but I saw a warm, beautiful, devotional document that really was written out of a heart of love and adoration to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I read the words, I said, this is what I see in the Bible. And the, the, the Westminster Standards became more a declaration of my faith than they'd ever been before. As I took the time to examine my faith and the object of my faith, I also began to see that in much of my life, the object of my faith wasn't actually Jesus. It was the religious tradition that I had been uh, raised in, if you will, not since childhood, but since becoming a Christian. It was more the rituals. It was more the disciplines. And I began to see that, that it wasn't always Jesus that was the object of my faith, but I had these other things. Each of us needs to examine ourselves 
and to find what is the object of our faith and to examine that. We'll consider the alternatives. In verses 1 through 7, he really begins to critique um, and to look at the, the faith in the animal sacrifices that the Jews had. These first century Jews began to believe that it was these sacrifices that would save them. And he wants to point out to them how, if you will, silly that was and how irrational that was, but he, he looks at that. Okay? This wasn't designed between Gary and I to, to <laughs> emphasize a point, so uh, we're, we're, we're good. <laughs> Got it. Okay. <laughs> We can have these different objects of our faith, right? Sometimes the object of our faith can actually be worship style, right? And I see that on, on different fronts, that, that people can only worship in one particular style, and maybe it's that they want the high tradition, or maybe they want the, the free-flowingness. But either way, they begin to, the object of faith becomes the worship style. It can be the doctrine. That what I really am, am having faith in is the doctrine instead of the God whom the doctrine is to describe. I can... Sometimes my object in faith can be the preacher, that I begin to follow a particular preacher. Isn't that the problem we have today with celebrity pastors, is that we run into exactly that. And sometimes it's just my own ideas. My object of faith becomes my own ideas. It's what I think is what my faith is in. And I've got to be careful about that, and I've got to examine them. I've got to ask myself, does it set me free? Does the object of my faith actually set me free? Look in verse 2, he says, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? That is, these animal sacrifices. Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have caught consciousness of sin. If the animal sacrifices had been sufficient and it really set them free, once they had the sacrifice, they would no longer be aware of their sin because they would be free from their sin. And that's what he wants to drive home. The thing that Jesus brings to us is real freedom, true freedom, that the animal sacrifices that cannot. He wants to give us true freedom that my doctrine can't actually give to me. To give me true freedom that my order of, of worship and my style cannot give me. The freedom that my own mind cannot give me. The freedom that Jesus alone can give. It's the freedom that we read about as we began the service today in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Which says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. I use this verse all the time as, as I counsel women who are in abusive relationships. And I begin to point out to them that God has created them to be free, not to be slaves of their spouse. And imagine what it would be like for a woman who has been in an abusive relationship to have been constantly oppressed and constantly controlled, to be enslaved in this marriage, and then to understand that I can stand free. And that is the exact image that Paul is bringing for all of us when it comes to our relationship with sin, which has been oppressing us, but Christ has made us free. And we can stand firm in that freedom and not ever submit ourselves to the yoke of slavery again. Ever. Ever. I know the ever is something I add to the verse, but I think it's implied that we want to be free and we need to live free. And it's freedom that Christ gives us. As you look at the object of your faith, does it set you free? And does it make sense? That's the other question. Does it make sense? Think about some of the, the different ideas that we have uh, as objects of our faith in, in, in living ourselves. Sometimes we think about prayer as though God will give me whatever I ask, right? 
All i got to do is ask in his name, and he's going to give it to me. Really? Uh, we were with a, a friend who was getting ready to become a screenwriter in Hollywood, and uh, we wanted to talk about how she could uh, do her work as a Christian when she might be writing on some program that isn't necessarily Christian. And she knew of uh, a friend who had actually uh, uh, written uh, the, the movie Bruce Almighty. This person was a Christian and wanted to express their faith in a comedic way, and so they wrote uh, Bruce Almighty. And I don't know if you've seen that, that movie. Um, I never would have gone to see it if it wasn't for uh, Jennifer and Ryan, but uh, we went to see it with them and to talk about that. And there were a couple different parts of it that were just uh, uh, profound. And one of them is that he begins to hear prayers. He's given the powers of God, and, and, and so people are praying, and so he's hearing the prayers. And so he, he's trying to figure out uh, what to do with all of these prayers. And finally, he, he says, well, let them come to me on my computer. So they come on the computer, and he's reading all of them. And finally, he just says, yes to all. Send. And the result is absolute chaos, right, that ensues on, on the city of, of Buffalo and just about destroys the whole place. And so he talks to God, and he says, you know, what's the deal with it? He says, that's not the prayers of the whole world. That's just these, like, four blocks. That's all you got there. And, and, and just realizing that, that if God were to just say yes to all of us, it would utterly destroy this world, right? As he says, we don't know what we want, let alone know what's good for us. We don't have a clue. And so do I put my object that God will give me whatever I ask? Well, of course not. It doesn't make sense. It's not reasonable. Some other ideas that, that I can come up with and that he's dealing with, in particular with the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system. Killing an animal will save my soul. Right? Isn't he, in essence, in these first few verses saying, well, that's ridiculous. Seriously? Seriously, you think that's going to work? How's that going to work? There's no way. It's irrational. It's unreasonable. The killing of the animal is always an appeal to God to save your soul. The action there wasn't what was going to do it. It was pointing to something else. Is it reasonable? Does it make sense? I can obey enough to make it to heaven. Right? And is it Dr. Phil who says, How's that working for you? Right? We can say that to everyone but one. And it's not working. You can't. Which is a part of what Jesus did in giving us the uh, Sermon on the Mount. He starts out by showing, oh, you're much more sinful than you think. You know that it was said, you shall not uh, commit adultery, but if you lust, it's, you've committed adultery in your heart. You've said, don't murder, but if, if you're angry with your brother, you've committed murder. And he begins to show us, you're not doing so good. That doesn't make any sense. But what about this? God loves us enough to rescue us. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? Now that makes sense. So we consider the alternatives as we examine the object of our faith. And then, and then we consider Jesus. And yes, it's okay. It's okay to examine your faith in Jesus. Because we want to understand what is true. The author turns his attention away from, from the sacrifices in verses 8 through 10 and turns it upon Jesus. He says in verse 8, After saying above, sacrifice and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you've not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. 
By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Through the body of Christ. Why was he a man? Why did he have a body? It was in his body that he suffered. God as God, a spirit, cannot suffer. He cannot die for you, for He is God. To die for you, He had to be given a body. And that body would then be that which would die, that He would bear the punishment for our sins. He also needed to have a body in order to obey. He says that He is to do God's will in verse 9. To do your will. That's what He came to do, to do the will of God. And you see in this, and, and there are a couple uh, uh, slides that we'll, we'll skip past, uh, uh, but, but I, I want you to grasp what he's, what he's saying here at this point. Is he's pointing out to us that, that Jesus came and he was given a body, and in that body he did the will of the Father. He did the will of the Father in two different ways. He did the will of the Father, first of all, in obeying every command that God has ever given, that he might fulfill the covenant. But he also was given a body that he might be obeyed by allowing, that he might obey by allowing the wrath of God to fall upon him for every sin committed by every one of his people through all time. And he had to have that body to do that. And what that provides for us is the two elements of our justification. To be justified, we have to be forgiven of our sins, which is Jesus suffering for us, and we have to receive a righteousness that will cover us, and that's Jesus' obedience. His active obedience and His passive obedience come together, and they provide for us our justification. And to do that, He had to become a man. He had to be given a body. And in that body, He had to obey. And that is what we find when we begin to examine Jesus and we consider Him. Examine the object of your faith. And then, receive salvation. Verses 11 through 18. Um, probably will surprise no one. One of my favorite classes in college was public speaking. Um, I actually found it uh, to be really pretty easy, except uh, one, one uh, task we were given. We had to do a spontaneous speech in which we were given a picture, and we had to talk about that picture for three minutes. And they said, you didn't even have to talk about the picture, just talk about anything, just, you know, whatever. And I was given a picture. And at the time, all I saw was a man in a bubble bath. And I had no idea what to do with it, and I just did horrible. And then I found out it was Joe Namath, and it's like, I love Joe Namath. But if I had recognized it was Joe Namath, I'd have been able to talk about Joe Namath, but it wasn't. But I just got all flustered because there was, there was no preparation, which is why I don't mind speaking here, but that's because I've got all these notes, but these aren't the notes I've got. I've got pages and pages in my office that I went through before I put them into this. So I've done a lot of preparation. The other speech that we were given was a persuasive speech, and I remember that persuasive speech. I remember what I was challenging people to do, which was actually to be kind. And they said that what we want to do with a persuasive speech is we want to take someone from where they are and urge them to go somewhere else. We want to, to bring about a change in their life. And there's elements in which that, that really ties into preaching on a regular basis, which is one of the reasons I believe this is a sermon. Because you see, that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing at this point. He's urging the readers who have one foot in the Old Testament 
and one foot in the new. And he's urging them, he's persuading them to step fully into the new. To quit, to quit being on both. He knows they're moving apart and there's going to come a moment of decision and he's prompting them. And now this old man has got to go back before I can step up. But he's trying to urge them to, to be able to move into the new covenant, to make that full commitment that they would receive the salvation of the New Testament because the return to the Old Testament would entail rejecting salvation. It would say, I don't want that salvation that Jesus offers us because it's the Old Testament that always points to the new. It is the new that fulfills the old and the author is urging the readers and us to keep moving forward and receive salvation. He gives two points in order to do that. And the first is he shows that Jesus' death is enough in verses 11 through 13. He says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. You see, he points out that the Old Testament priests, and and he compares them with Jesus, they stand daily. They keep standing, and they're standing every single day, standing in that same place, doing that same thing. Why? Because their job isn't done. Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father because He has completed the job. Sitting down showed that the job was done. Jesus spoke of that in John 19.30 when He was upon the cross, and He said, It is finished. And we'll come back to that verse in in just a little bit. That idea that it is finished. The Old Testament priest versus Jesus. They're still working, but Jesus has completed it. So we know that his death is enough. And then he goes on to talk about his enemies. That he's waiting for the time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Who are Jesus' enemies? Have you ever thought about that? Right? I mean, the first one comes to mind, right, is the devil. We recognize that. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we read, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. He says that there's going to be this enmity between Jesus and the, the serpent, and between Jesus and the devil. There is this enmity that exists. Now, the great hope is, because we also look at Romans chapter 16, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Okay, so Jesus' enemy is also our enemy, but the great hope is that he will be crushed. There will be the time that he will be a footstool, that he will be under the foot of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second enemy is sin. We, we read about this when we read in, in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died 
is freed from sin. The first enemy is the devil, and he will be underneath Christ's foot and ours. The second enemy is sin, and we have been set free. As a matter of fact, we have died to sin so that it doesn't have power over us. And the third enemy, the last enemy, is death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's two sections I want us to look at here. The first is in verse 25 and verse 26. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that he that will be abolished is death. And verse 55. O death, where's your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting from that time onward until His enemies be made a footstool for His feet. His enemies, the devil, His enemy, sin, His enemy, death, will all be put as a footstool under His feet. He will conquer them ultimately and forever. And we long for that day. And we long for that salvation that He gives to us. And we know that that salvation is found through Jesus' death. And His death is enough. And I receive that and I believe that His death is enough. And because I believe that His death is enough, I can rest. I can rest because salvation is complete. He says in verse 14, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. We've talked about this word perfected. It's the word finish. It's the word complete. It comes from the the Greek word telos. As a matter of fact, it's in the exact same tense in this verse as it is in John 19.30. In John 19.30, he says it is finished. He says tetelestai. It's in the perfect tense. In this verse, he says it's also perfect. The perfect tense means it's a completed action that has ongoing effect. Isn't that a tremendous hope? Jesus' death is a completed action. And we are perfected. We are completed. We have reached God's goal for us, which is redemption. And that has ongoing effects forever. Never to stop. And that's what's been given to us. His death is sufficient. Because salvation is complete, I can rest. I can rest also because His law is in me. His law is in you. Look at verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with Him after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws upon their heart, and on their minds I will write them. His law is upon your heart. You know what that means? You know the truth, and you know you know it, right? You know it. You know what He wants you to do. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. You know the law. You know what it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. You know what it is to love your neighbor as yourself. You know that law. And inside your heart, you want to do that, don't you? I mean, you just do. Every one of you. That's one of the great things. You want something that unites us? We love Jesus Christ, and we want to honor Him. That's true of each of you. And you know, I think it's important that we remember that. Uh, there are, on, on several different fronts, I, I've been fascinated 
Um, I, I have different, follow, different people I follow on Twitter, very different. Uh, so, you know, some sports people and then some religious leaders. And there have been a number of things that have happened this last weekend. Um, there's some, an article that was printed in uh, one online publication in this last week that was just awful. Um, and people have rightly condemned it and, and critiqued it and done a very, very good job. And I've also seen a great outpouring of kindness to the author. And saying, this is a brother, and he misspoke. It was inappropriate. It was wrong. And people are saying, and we pray for him. Yes, because it's hard to read a critique like that publicly when you thought you were doing something really, really good, and you find out, ooh, man, I messed up. But I see that also in the sports world, that there's one, one basketball player in particular who's just really made some stupid choices. And to see the number of people, even non-Christians, reaching out and saying that they love him and they want better for him and Christians in particular, than reaching out. And I find that wonderful. <laughs> I really do. But doesn't that resonate in your heart? Why? Because the law of God has been written upon your heart. You know the truth. You want to do that which is right. And you can follow Jesus. You just can. Because he's put the law there. And he's done that to strengthen you and to empower you. So I can rest because my salvation is complete. I can rest because His law is in me. And I can rest because I'm forgiven. Verse 17. Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. I like that line from the song today. I'm I'm drowning in a sea of forgetfulness. I'd probably prefer floating to drowning. um, Because I'm floating in the sea of forgetfulness. And that's a wonderful thing. I, I, I know why they chose that, and, but, I, but I like that image to remember that, that he remembers my sins no more, which means I don't have to earn his forgiveness. It's already there. I already have it. You know, one of the great lies of the devil was he said to Adam and Eve, if you eat the fruit of this tree, you'll be like God. You know what the problem with that was? They already were. He was offering them what they already had. They were made in God's likeness. They were already like God and exactly like God, the way that God wanted them to be like God. And they said, oh, well, I want to be like God, so I need to eat this. No, 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 you are. So the lie comes to us that I want to be forgiven, so I've got to do something to be forgiven. No, 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 you already are. You don't have to be so sad for what you did so that you can be forgiven. You're already forgiven. You don't have to work really hard to do better so that you can be forgiven. You're already forgiven. But if I start with I'm forgiven... I can say, well, it's a shame that I violated that forgiveness. I'm sad at that. And I'm going to live according to my forgiveness. And it turns it all around. You are already forgiven. And you don't have to pretend. You don't have to pretend like you're not forgiven. Right? Sometimes we do that. You don't have to pretend like you are forgiven. Because you are forgiven. You can just rest. Receive his salvation, knowing that Jesus' death is enough. And then rest. I'd like to read to you a little bit from uh, Jesus' explanation of a parable from Matthew chapter 13. Remember the parable of the soils? that the sower went out and he sows the seed and some of it sprouts up and some of it's taken away by birds and some of it brings out a rich harvest. 
Jesus' explanation of that, I think, speaks to specifically what we're talking about today. It's in Matthew chapter 13, beginning of verse 18. Here then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one who, on whom seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. When affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom the seed has sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. I hope you see the, the, the picture. <clears throat> the seed is that invitation to grow, that invitation to change. It's the word of God. To these Jews who had one foot in the old and one foot in the new, it comes to them and it says, will you step forward? They've got the seed. What are they going to do with it? To us, the word of God has come to you. It comes to you week after week. It can become a place where we just want to skate, right? We just want to slide on. We assume that the momentum that we started with will continue to carry us. We forget the law of inertia, right? That is, that things are going to slow down as we've got the, the friction that's against us, the resistance that's there. It's going to eventually slow us down, and we've got to recognize that even in our spiritual life. And so we've got to keep moving forward. Keep moving forward. How do I do that? How do I keep moving forward? I do that as I continually examine the object of my faith and I make sure that I receive salvation. And when I speak of receiving salvation, that is to say that I'm going to believe that Jesus has died for my sins. Do you? Do so this day. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we love you and we thank you for this time and we thank you for the grace that you have bestowed to us. We thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray that you will strengthen our faith and grant that we might love you more. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.